Good afternoon, everybody. Um, welcome to the latest episode of the European Institute Perspectives on Europe Public Lectures. We're very pleased to welcome the Norwegian Finance Minister, if I pronounce it correctly, Shiv Jensen. Not so bad. <laughs> she is the, the leader of the Progress Party, one of the coalition members. I won't go through a detailed biography because you can read this, this, uh, this online, but I do know a couple of facts about her. I haven't, I haven't warned her about this, because, so I might get hit if I'm, if I'm not careful. One is that in Norway she's described as having a bone in her nose. And the second is that at one stage she kept in her office a bust of Ronald Reagan. This may tell you something about her politics. She is also, I believe, very similar to a certain iron lady in having a background with parents who ran a shop. Maybe that's enough provocation for one's, one starting point. <laughs> what, we, what she's going to talk about today is how to boost growth as the oil price falls. In other words, how do you transform and reform the Norwegian economy? Now, some of us would think that's a pretty easy task when you have a sovereign wealth fund that's three times GDP. Makes it far easier than if you're Greece or, or Italy. <laughs> but I'm sure, Minister, that you're going to enlighten us on whether I'm wrong on this. Great welcome <clears throat> to Shiv Jensen. Thank you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here at London School of Economics and Political Science. Um, the LSE has contributed substantially to economic and political science throughout the years uh, and has helped to shape our views on economics and indeed on economic policy. This school has educated many excellent economists, political scientists and law specialists, and I'm pleased to say that some of them are actually serving at my ministry in Oslo. Um, the economic theory developed here and in other prominent universities uh, helps us understand how markets work uh, and uh, how economic agents interact and lays the foundation for modern governments. As policymakers, however, we are not only concerned with understanding how the economy works, uh, but even more importantly, how it should work. How can we design economic mechanisms <clears throat> and institutions that support our objectives more, more effectively? How can we design uh, government in a way that makes the economy more robust against disturbances and uh, promotes productivity and economic growth? Many LSE academics have made substantial contribution to normative um, economics, and several have been awarded the Nobel Peace, uh, no, not the Peace Prize, but the Nobel Prize in their field. Uh, Leonid Hurwitz used game theory uh, to prescribe the design of optimal mechanisms, uh, how markets should be organized. Uh, Robert Mundell gave new insight in how targets and responsibilities should be organized between the government and the central bank. And uh, Frederick Hayek uh, studied how economic systems should be set up or not uh, set up, to name a few. What they had in common <clears throat> was their quest for using fundamental economic theory to design economic policy that uh, provides good outcomes. Objectives are often easier to achieve when decisions are left to economic agents 
facing the right incentives, rather than to an almighty political planner. I imagine some of these scholars would, um, would rather claim that fine-tuning the economy by politicians in many cases rather increases the problem. I will use this lecture to reflect upon how to design a good macroeconomic stabilization framework based on recent experience of the Norwegian economy. Assigning the right objectives uh, to the right institutions is crucial to developing a sound and robust economic and financial system. I will also touch upon the importance of international cooperation, where large countries need to manage their responsibility as leaders in the international marketplace. (coughs) Policymakers are elected to pursue different political objectives. Often, political objectives are linked to fiscal policy, either through uh, specific priorities for government spending or priorities related to the level of different taxes. (coughs) The finance minister is obliged to strike a balance between all the political ambitions and a sustainable fiscal policy. Striking that balance can be demanding, um, especially since uncertainty and shocks to the economy continuously influence our ability to pursue our goals. Robustness against uh, unforeseen shocks should be an important criterion when assigning the division of roles between fiscal policy, monetary policy, and the social partners. For a long time, a fixed exchange rate was the order of the day, not only in Norway, but also in the UK. The fixed exchange rate regime was a design that put heavy burdens not only on fiscal policy, uh, but also on the social partners. In economic downturns, fiscal policy needed to contract to support the currency peg, and uh, adjustment in the real exchange rate was left to the social partners through often painful adjustments in the wage level. Ever since I was first elected to the Norwegian parliament some uh, 20 years ago, it made me feel very old, um, I have believed that economic policy would benefit from delegating an inflation target for monetary policy to the central bank. The UK adjusted its macroeconomic framework in the late 1990s, providing a clearer division of roles and responsibilities between the Treasury and the Bank of England. Norway followed in 2001. An inflation target was introduced in parallel with the spending rule for fiscal policy. From a finance minister's point of view, It's a bit of a paradox that we can achieve more by relinquishing the opportunity to decide the interest rate ourselves. I believe the paradox was first pointed out by the economists Finn Kidlan and Edward Prescott, uh, for which they were later awarded the Nobel Prize. By introducing uh, inflation targeting, a new division of roles was introduced to the economic uh, policy framework. Monetary policy is responsible for nominal stability and can also contribute to stabilizing the real economy in the short run. The central government budget, growth in public expenditure, has a longer-term focus and influences the balance between the public sector and the private sector. The budget will be used to decide on the size and the scope of, of the welfare state, which by nature should not fluctuate from year to year. 
Wage formation and economic structures and incentives lay the basis for the effective and efficient use of labor and other real economic resources and for economic growth. The objectives that we uh, assign to fiscal policy and to monetary policy must harmonize with uh, what the different policy instruments have the ability to achieve. That is uh, the crucial lesson in designing a good macroeconomic policy framework. The division of roles has been put to a test recently. As you know, oil and gas prices have fallen markedly since the summer of 2014. Being one of the world's largest um, petroleum exporters, this constitutes a major negative shock to the Norwegian economy. The previous time we... um, were exposed to a shock of of the same magnitude was in the late 1980s. A comparison of economic developments then and now is useful. In size, the two oil price shocks are similar, but economic developments, however, differ substantially. The oil price fall in 1986 ushered in a long period of economic turbulence, with a sharp and lingering increase in unemployment. This time, the increase in unemployment has been more subdued. And importantly, uh, this time employment has continued to increase uh, in contrast to the sharp fall in the late 1980s. I believe that one reason our economy is so far coping fairly well despite the 70% drop in oil prices is the macroeconomic cushions that we have established. Three components of our economic policy framework have proved particularly important. First, monetary policy is aimed at low and stable inflation with a floating currency. The central bank no longer sets the interest rate with the purpose of stabilizing the the currency, but with the view to safeguard low and stable inflation. That will also typically contribute to a counter-cyclical monetary policy. In good times, with prospects for increasing inflation, interest rates are increased. And in economic slowdowns, with prospects for weak growth and low inflation, interest rates are reduced. (coughs) Monetary policy acts as an important cushion in economic policy. Instead of leaving the stabilisation task to fiscal policy, it has become our first line of defence in economic stabilisation. Earlier, when a stable currency was deemed top priority, setting the interest rate was done under constraints that often amplified the fluctuations in the economy. That was clearly the case in the late 1980s, when the real interest rate increased sharply, as you can see in the blue line. The floating exchange rate has been virtuous this time. The booming years from the beginning of the millennium came with a relatively strong real appreciation and increasingly high cost level, as one would expect. Now we have to reverse that development. In the current international environment of low real wage growth, it would have been quite an ordeal to improve our competitiveness through wages alone, as was the case under the fixed exchange rate regime. 
with a floating currency, a real depreciation could take place through the nominal exchange rate. Our currency has depreciated by 15 to 20 percent against our main trading partners over the past couple of years. Such a large and swift adjustment in the competitiveness is key to stabilizing the economy after the decline in the petroleum sector and to support the transition of labor to new competitive sectors. It may, however, take some time before we see the full impact of domestic activity. Second, we have strong public finances and a prudent but flexible fiscal framework. The fiscal guideline that was uh, introduced in 2001 implied saving a large part of the increasing petroleum revenues in a fund. The fund today amounts to more than 800 billion US dollars, or close to three times non-all GDP. Our fiscal policy framework uh, is based on prudence and the distribution of the oil wealth between generations. <clears throat> All the government's petroleum income enters the fund, while only the expected real return on the fund is spent over the budget. As a consequence, we are not spending oil revenues as such, but the financial return on the fund. As opposed to many other countries that experience economic distress, um, our solid public finances allow automatic stabilizers to work. In short, we do not need to cut welfare when facing a cyclical income shortfall. On the contrary, we are in the position to conduct counter-cyclical fiscal policy uh, without the imminent uh, constraints uh, of excess debt burdens, as many other countries experienced after the financial crisis. Fiscal strength is certainly a short-term advantage, um, and in that can help us smooth the transitional phase of increased idle capacity. At the same time, we believe that expanding the public sector is not the right answer when the challenge by nature is structural. The economy must adapt to a new normal, where the petroleum industry is a less prominent growth engine than it has been over the uh, past 10 to 15 years. The third important buffer I would highlight is a robust and well-functioning financial sector. In the late 1980s, the combination of high interest rates, high inflation, high marginal taxes, and tax-deductible uh, interest payments, bad banking, and a heavily indebted household sector eventually led to the Norwegian banking crisis, which had severe consequences for our economy. The financial industry is vital both to economic stability and growth. Whereas a fragile financial sector tends to amplify an economic crisis, a solid, well-capitalized um, one may even be able to cushion a downturn. We need strong regulation and supervision to ensure that our banks are robust and our capital markets are efficient. The international financial crisis has shown the need for good financial market regulation and supervision both nationally and internationally. Norway is a strong supporter of the current efforts to improve regulation and supervision of banks and other financial institutions, 
and the development of consistent regula uh, regulation securing that the same risk is regulated in the same way in all financial institutions. The Norwegian authorities have also acted early to phase in the different versions of the Basel and EU banking regulations uh, and are often a bit stricter than the minimum requirements under these frameworks. Over the past years, more solid banks have been a priority uh, and the banks have to a large extent used their profits to expand their capital base. Today, thanks to the increased capital requirements, our banks can enjoy a solid position in the funding market and appear less risky to investors. For Norwegian banks as a whole, the leverage ratio <clears throat> measured as the core equity capital relative to uh, total balance sheets stood at an average of 7.5% at year-end uh, 2015. This is far above the minimum requirements in the Basel framework and indeed very high uh, in a Nordic and European context. As most advanced economies, we have seen a significant fall in productivity growth in recent years. Trend growth in productivity in Norway is now historically low, uh, at below 1%, compared with an average of about 3% in the previous period. This is an international phenomenon. Norway fares better than many other countries, but this tendency needs to be turned around. We also have to deal with an aging population and an underutilization of labor. The welfare of our citizens and the sustainability of our public finances in the longer term depends on how we handle these issues. The crucial point is productivity growth. And to quote another associate of LSE, Paul Krugman, productivity isn't everything, but in the long run it is almost everything. Therefore, the Norwegian government appointed a productivity commission with a mandate to identify and analyze uh, the causes of the slowdown and to give advice on reforms to increase productivity growth. The commission has highlighted several sectors with low productivity growth, among them food processing industry and several service industries. The lack of international competition was pointed out as one of the main reasons for low productivity growth in these sectors. Another sector with low productivity growth has been the construction sector. The large inflow of immigrant workers, many from Eastern Europe, has been important for overall growth in the Norwegian economy, but less so for productivity. The Commission highlights higher education, research and innovation, a well-functioning labour market, and efficiency in the public sector as areas where reforms could bring large potential gains. Having top-class universities such as London School of Economics is important uh, to attract the best students and the best scholars. As this chart shows, we are lagging behind not only the UK and Switzerland but also our Scandinavian neighbours in this respect. The Productivity Commission points out that increased emphasis on quality in higher education 
is essential to transform our economy into a more knowledge-based economy. To support economic growth, the government has set up uh, an ambitious reform agenda. We have already embarked on several reforms in order to ensure that uh, working, saving and investing pays off. We are reducing the overall tax level for both households and businesses and improving the design of the, the, of the tax system to stimulate more environmentally friendly behaviour. We are implementing uh, reforms to make public sector more efficient. Our public sector is large, occupying about 30% of the labour force. Benchmarking of institutions indicates a large potential for efficiency gains. A reform of the transport sector is under implementation with the aim to enhance efficiency and economic profitability through reorganisation and more, com uh, more competition in this sector. We have reorganised the railway sector to achieve a more market-oriented and efficient uh, governance structure and established a new road development company in order to develop our big highway projects more efficiently and at a lower cost. I believe in a free and independent business sector without special treatment or anti-competitive agreements, a free flow of goods and services and free access to markets. These are prerequisites for strong productivity growth. Therefore, we should foster competition and trade both domestically and, in, and across borders. We should remove structural <coughs> impediments and barriers to entry. For a small country like Norway, adoption of international technology is crucial. Openness in the form of trade, foreign ownership and human mobility facilitates such adoption. Competition provides incentives to engage in innovation and technology adaptation. Competition also contributes to reallocation gains as low productivity businesses are closed down and replaced by higher productivity businesses. The government aims at a flexible labour market where workers possess skills demanded by employers. Active labour market policies and flexible employment protection has been central to Norway's ability to facilitate structural change in the economy and reallocation of labour. I have underlined the importance of open and well-functioning markets. Few other countries have made such a large bet on the capitalist system as Norway. Our natural resources have value only as long as we can export to uh, international markets. And we invest our sovereign wealth fund in stocks, bonds and real estate all across the world. Access to foreign markets is of utmost importance. Good and stable framework conditions uh, internationally are essential. Therefore, we are staunch supporters of global institutions that foster trade and free investments, like the IMF and the WTO. The most important international market for us is clearly the European market. 
Ever since it uh, took effect in 1994, the agreement on the European Economic Area, the EEA, has been the cornerstone of our Europe policy. The EEA brings together the 28 EU member states and Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein in an internal market governed by the same basic rules. The agreement provides for participation in the internal market for all sectors except agriculture and fisheries and ensures that our households and businesses enjoy the same benefits as their EU peers in the European market. It provides predictability and a level playing field. Under the EEA agreement, Norway has become closely linked to the European integration process. The agreement is dynamic, meaning that new EU regulation are taken into the EEA agreement. The cooperation has also extended to more and more areas. We take part in the, the Schengen Agreement and cooperate closely with the EU on foreign policy and security issues. We participate in preparatory work uh, under the Commission. As a non-EU member, we obviously do not take part in the decision-making process within the EU. But there is a small space for adaptations when the regulations are taken into the EEA. There is also a possibility to veto new regulations, but that has almost never been used. This figure illustrates the importance of the EU countries for the Norwegian economy. One could almost claim that we are economically more integrated into the EU than some euro area countries. The free movement of persons within the EEA has generally served Norway well. In the booming years, inflows of labour mitigated overheating and restrained the rise in the cost level. Labour migration has in fact been a stabilising factor in the Nordic countries since uh, the 1950s when the common Nordic labour market was created. After the EU expansion eastward, Norway has been one of the countries receiving the largest number of uh, labour immigrants from Eastern Europe per capita. Like in Britain, the export of social uh, benefits has become an issue in recent years. We support the British call uh, for some kind of threshold for when benefits may be claimed uh, or cost-level indexation of exported benefits. From an economic point of view, I believe the most valuable part of European cooperation is the internal market. Still, there is room for improvement. Regulations need to be better and lighter. Barriers to cross-border trade and investment need to be reduced further. And there is a substantial amount of red tape in the system that needs to be cut. New business models create new challenges, which need to be tackled. A topical trend is the sharing economy, or perhaps more precisely, uh, the web-based economy. The web knows no borders. Therefore, we need international cooperation to help regulate and tax these new businesses correctly. And the EU is right to take a lead here. When the London School of Economics was established uh, 121 years ago, 
approximately. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the vision was to share knowledge and to shape a better world. Today, the school's mission is to advance knowledge in social sciences so, to, so as to inform public policy and economic decision-making for the betterment of uh, society. And that goal is important. That goal is ambitious. And the outcome of that goal is useful. I have described how we have benefited from um, economic theory and research when designing our policy framework in Norway. The LSE has been an important provider of such knowledge. The school strategy states that it will continue to nurture creative thoughts and intellectual exploration uh, to educate critical thinkers and skilled professionals around the world. I will encourage you to vigorously pursue that strategy. And I hope our lessons from Norway illustrate that your mission is indeed, <laughs> indeed pertinent. Uh, how to improve... Uh, Productivity and economic growth is still one of the major quests for policymakers and for economic theory. Hopefully, we shall continue to develop our understanding on the economic, uh, on the economy, policymakers, and universities together. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for a very lucid explanation of uh, Nor Norway's dilemmas and the approach that you're taking to deal with them. If you'll allow me, I'll ask you one very technical question first, and then we'll open to the audience. We'll take questions in groups of threes, but just to kick things off. You mentioned various economists, and in case you hadn't noticed, several previous directors of LSE are adorning the walls. They they've been controlling what you've been saying. Some of them have smiled in the process. <laughs> The question I'm going to ask refers to another Nobel Prize-winning economist, Bob Solon, who said that you can see ICT, information and communication technologies, everywhere except in the productivity figures. Now, I wonder, given you were saying all the ways in which the Norwegian Commission is expecting to improve productivity, whether enough attention has been paid to both the role of uh, ICT and whether we're measuring productivity correctly. Important question. I would say that um, well, we are um, implementing ICT solutions uh, to different parts of public sector uh, actually at higher speed than before. And that is because we, we have seen that ICT solutions is actually improving um, efficiency, especially in public sector. We have done this very successfully uh, with, uh, within the tax authorities. Uh, they have um, developed um, better and smarter ICT solutions uh, that's actually helped make our, um, uh, uh, the whole tax authorities and the system surrounding it more efficient over time. And we will continue to introduce uh, those kinds of solutions to other parts of, of public sector as well because we know for a fact that we'll, it will uh, increase productivity, especially in public sector. Okay, well, maybe we should look to the other end of the Baltic where I'm, I'm told that the country closest to St. Petersburg is known as E-Estonia these days, given the, the approach that they've taken to implementing <laughs> these things. Yeah. Now, let's, let's, let's take a few questions. Uh, I'll take uh, groups of three 
And I do encourage the women in the audience also to uh, ask questions because sometimes they're a bit reticent here. I don't know why. Not like Norwegians at all. <laughs> Who's first? Uh, right, in the middle with the glasses. If you could just wait. <clears throat> Hello, thank you very much for that um, talk. I'm Daniel, I'm studying at UCL. So in these times, cost management is arguably very important for um, to boost growth. And uh, you mentioned the public sector, and um, when you were elected two years ago, you were talking about um, shrinking or building down the bureaucracy. But in fact, it has swelled. Basically, it is a big cost factor, and um, it is swelling more and more. So what is your plan to, to tackle that? Thanks. Another question over here. Hello. Um, my name is Jenny. I'm a Norwegian. I'm a third-year undergraduate here at the LSC. Um, I want to relate my question to an event that happened earlier this week, which was um, International Women's Day. And uh, although I disagree with you on the political platform, I've always admired you and respected you as a strong female leader that you are. And in the public sector, we have almost 40% female leadership. However, in the private sector, we're still struggling a lot with uh, only 8% of female leaders in uh, the biggest companies. So my question is, how can we uh, boost female growth, female leadership in uh, the private sector in Norway? Three euros forward. Yes. Thanks. Now, lady with her hand up. Uh, hi, Steve. Thank you very much for coming to LSE. Uh, my name is Valeria. I'm Ukrainian, but I've lived in Norway for five years, so I'm very interested in this topic. Um, you touched a bit upon on the cooperation of Norway with the European Union, and I think many of us here in the UK would be interested in your view about potential Brexit. What do you think UK has to gain and to lose by uh, leaving EU or, or staying in? Thank you. I warned you that question would happen. <laughs> right. Three questions we need to start with. Well, I've actually been uh, haunted by Brexit questions all day. Um, I started this morning uh, with an interview with CNBC. I had an interview with Bloomberg, and then I had an interview with CNN, and they all asked me questions on Brexit. And I think uh, the wisest thing to do is to take a step back and uh, really don't take part in that debate, because this is basically a debate uh, that goes on here, and the referendum is, uh, is to be uh, settled in the UK. So I don't think uh, it's, it's my place as a... Uh, Norwegian politician to have a, a saying in that. Uh, so what, what do the reporters do then? They continue to ask, but just from another perspective. So then they ask about the EA agreement, which I thoroughly touched upon in my, in my uh, lecture. Um, I don't know if you can com- compare um, UK and Norway, because Norway is a very small uh, but very open economy. Uh, the EA agreement has served us very well, especially since it gives us access to the internal market, but it, it's not a free ride. We pay for that. And at the same time, we do introduce, uh, no, we do, we do um, um, implement EU regulations at high speed. But it, in, in large and overall, this agreement has served us well. But I have to, to, to uh, highlight one important thing. When we um, uh, negotiated the EA agreement, EU was much smaller than it is today. 
fewer member states, and I think basically all member states had an awareness about the EA agreement. Today, it's a little bit more difficult because the EU structure is more complex. There are so... Uh, <laughs> and also because of the turmoil that goes on in the European economy and so forth, it, you should have really raised your voice to get the, the attention needed in uh, some of the negotiations that we actually need to see through. Uh, from a Norwegian perspective. So it's a little bit more struggle uh, to get uh, the attention that we need, but I still believe that the agreement uh, is serving Norway well. Thank you for the question on female uh, leadership. I think that is a very good question, and unfortunately it's difficult to, to give uh, one answer to it. First of all, I think, um, at least for public sector, it has, or I think even for private sector, it has to do with with having good role models. Uh, but there are some things that it's important to figure out, actually, because if you see at universities, uh, I don't know the figures here, but I know the Norwegian figures, uh, where um, the majority of the students are um, female, and the majority of the female students take higher education, which would actually give us uh, the impression that it, that would eventually lead to more female leadership, also in private sector. So what happens from, from there to, to, um, to the next step, I don't know. I think it's, um, it's a little bit more... I, don't, I really don't know, but I think that we need to continue to have focus on it because I think it's important. I think that uh, balanced leadership in businesses as in public sector is important. Uh, so we should continue to, to, um, to debate it. Uh, but I think that... We, we have a responsibility as well to take on uh, the tasks. And I, I have said in many lectures for, for a long time, actually, that I, I don't know if it's in the genes or whatever it is, but we, we women tend to want to um, make... Sh we, we need to be more than 100% sure that we can tackle something. 120% sure that we can tackle something before we take on a task. While as uh, men are sometimes, uh, <laughs> they take it on and they have experience that it actually goes very well. And I think we need to experience that uh, as, as well. Because you, you, you cannot, <laughs> you don't know everything before you experience it. And being a good leader is, isn't something that you can train for. It's something that you have to work on. So I think you have to take on the responsibility and learn by it and pass on that uh, knowledge to others on the way. Cost management and bureaucracy swelling. Well, yes, that's a fact. Um, but I think that, or at least I hope that we will see those figures changing uh, in, uh, in the years ahead. And that has to do with uh, some of the reforms that we have already introduced a couple of years ago, we introduced an efficiency reform in the, in the, in the budget that actually um, is, um, is, a, is a put on all um, actors in, uh, in the state sector. Now we will do the same for, uh, hopefully in the future, for, um, for the municipality sector as well. And I think those kinds of measures is forcing... Uh, 
public sector to uh, prioritize better between uh, or on how they spend uh, the, the money given to them in the budget process. It's actually proven to be very efficient. Hopefully we will see better results on it in the future. But we still need to push new reforms because I think that is uh, the most important thing that we can do to uh, make public sector more efficient. But some of the figures is actually because we have wanted it to happen. That we have uh, 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 more police now than we had some years ago. That's because we wanted it. That we have better schools and more scholars. That's because we wanted it. So in some of those figures, it's, uh, it's because we, we decided to... to uh, Act on it, and you can see you can actually see it reflected in the in the figures as well. Okay, well, the picture of Kelly Thank you. Uh, my name is Kristina Cinchle, and I worked as an energy analyst with Bloomberg. I will, not ask, I will not ask you on Brexit, <laughs> but I would like to touch other two points important for Norway's economy. First of all, the sovereign wealth fund, and uh, and talk about. Uh, about fiscal and monetary policies. So, uh, sovereign wealth fund. Um, we can see that uh, the cash inflows from from uh, your, uh, from the investments of a fund uh, they are increasing year over year. I think it has the best performance from all uh, petrodollars funds in the world, and it actually is the only fund that it's not selling assets, but it's still investing in. Um, I think you already pointed out that, uh, um, that these inflows are enough in order to offset the withdrawals of the government from uh, the from the fund. And if it's so, um, in which countries besides EU you are concentrated to invest in and in what uh, economic uh, sectors? Because you have a very good performance and maybe we could uh, uh, learn something from your uh, investment experience. And my second question is about fiscal and monetary policy. Um, I would like you to ask to go maybe deeper into uh, the balance between these two economic policies. Because... Um, the general feeling uh, across the market here in the UK and Europe is that the central bankers, they, uh, they're running out of uh, ammunition in order to, to boost the, the economy and the market. Um, me personally, I have uh, my doubts about this. But, uh, yes, of course, I'm sorry. Um, how is the balance in Norway? Uh, and is there any lessons that y uh, you and the UK might l uh, learn from, uh, uh, from Norway? Thank you. Uh, hi, sir. Thank you for the speech. I'm uh, Morten, a student here at the LSE. Uh, my question is considering the split of the Norwegian economy uh, when you talked about the economic stimulus. Uh, from my perspective, I view that the western parts have a need of a different economic stimulus than the eastern parts. So I was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit more about exactly that point. Thank you. Another question just behind you. Hi, I'm uh, Tobias Fell from the LSE. Uh, I study environmental policy and regulation. And my question is related to the renewable energy sector. Given its potential, what role would it play in the transformation of the Norwegian economy? Thanks. Okay. <clears throat> First, uh, on the government uh, pension fund global. Um, this is a, it's a financial investor. And it has um, all over the world in thousands of companies. Uh, and I think the most important thing concerning the fund is that it's supposed to be, it needs to be transparent. 
and um, <clears throat> predictable. It's not a foreign policy tool. It's not a pool to tackle environmental issues. It's first and foremost a financial investor with a very long-term perspective. And with that long-term perspective, we can tackle uh, uh, the turmoils that occurs on, on the stock exchanges from time to time uh, because in the longer term, it gives us a good return on, on the money. Um, when it comes to uh, the investment profile of the funds, I mean, the, the government and the, the parliament sets up the overall criteria, the balance between uh, uh, stocks and bonds and, and, and um, uh, how we, the, the overall investment strategy is, is set up. But the daily uh, management is managed by the central bank. So we don't take uh, individual decisions on country-specific issues or specific companies and so forth. That has to be dealt with by the central bank. And I think that is uh, a separation of power and the, the good mechanisms so that you don't uh, bring all these decisions into, in, into the policy-making room. That would make it extremely difficult to manage the fund in a, uh, a long-term perspective. Um, <clears throat> I agree that in, uh, in many countries, um, the central bankers have run out of ammunition. I think that's an important question that you're actually uh, uh, putting on the table. Uh, and I don't have all the answers to that. I actually have been discussing this with uh, some of the British politicians that I've met with uh, uh, these days. Uh, but from a Norwegian perspective, we still have um, some ammunition left the interest rate level in Norway is uh, 0.75%, which uh, gives the uh, central bank the uh, uh, possibility to still uh, use monetary policy and to influence uh, uh, the economy uh, also in the, in the future. But I think it's the balance between all the cushions that we are actually putting in place that helps the uh, Norwegian economy uh, today. And as I said in my speech, it's the, it's the balance between the monetary policy and the fiscal policy and, of course, the currency. These three are important factors. And as I said, the, the, the weakening of the currency alone has improved our competitiveness by almost 20% uh, the last uh, two years, which is extremely important. And that is to, to the question on the east and western uh, part of Norway. It's true. Uh, what we are seeing now is, is uh, basically a rise in unemployment in the southern and western parts of Norway, where you have... <laughs> Uh, the major concentration of oil and gas-related businesses and industries. Of course, they are severely affected by the steep drop in oil prices that, that we are facing. But <coughs> taking a step back, we have known for a long time that the Norwegian oil and gas production would peak. Now that it would eventually uh, go down to a lower uh, investment level. But it came a little bit quicker than we thought because of the drop in oil prices. And it affects the industry harder uh, than it would have if the oil price had stayed at a higher level for a longer period of time. But we, we would still need to restructure our economy because we knew that oil and gas production would peak. So 
what we have seen for the last 10 to 15 years with tremendous growth in this sector, it has peaked and it will, I don't know, stabilize at a lower level. It will um, employ fewer people than it has employed um, up until a couple of years ago, which means that we need to make sure that we uh, attract investments into other parts of the economy. We need to create more jobs in other parts of the economy. And we have, I think we have the means to do so. But it's, it takes time. That's the difficulty with uh, structural shifts. It takes longer time. Uh, and we need, we, we need to um, focus on that. Uh, and in the meantime, we can use also the fiscal uh, policy uh, to uh, stabilize the situation. Uh, and I think that we will, we will be able to do so. And that is actually connected to the next question of well, just, renewables. Just one aspect of that was the renewables. Yes, and that's, I'm okay. touching upon that now. <laughs> because uh, in addition to being uh, uh, a major exporter of uh, oil and gas, we're also um, producing a lot of renewable energy. The Norwegian households uh, are basically uh, using hydro energy, all households. And we have a potential of producing more uh, of that kind of renewable energy. And we, we are uh, involved in a lot of R&D projects uh, to see the potential in other types of renewable energy also in the future. Uh, the problem is that uh, the, 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 the prices on um, energy today is very, very, very low. So how do you stimulate investments into other renewable energy um, when... Uh, because you, you, you will not invest in that unless you get return on your money. But in the longer-term perspective, I think um, the whole renewable energy system or sector is, is of importance. And for a resource-rich country like Norway, I think we have great opportunities also within uh, the renewable sector in, in the years ahead. Okay, one last round of questions. One, one here. Um, yeah. Yeah. My name is Yusuf. I'm a student at King's, and I'm from Oman, one of the Gulf oil-producing countries. We are, unfortunately, less successful compared with Norwegian, and uh, we are in real uh, problem. You mentioned the importance of institution and to sign the, 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 the right objective to the right institution, although there will, there will be some conflict between institutions. Also, you mentioned about the importance of striking the balance, you know, in saving spending and 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 uh, uh, so so how, how you succeed to do that there is any recipe any tablet we can use it <laughs> hi my name is uh, christina um going back to productivity norway has a social model which is widely admired all over the world um but it is also hugely expensive um so given that we actually or norway being the Norwegian, um, have to improve our productivity. Do you see any room for reforming parts of the welfare states? And what are the easy pickings? And where do you think we have to work on the long run? Nothing like an easy question. Pass the microphone two rows forward. I'm afraid this has to be the last question. We're, we're yeah, my name is uh, Odd Wagler. I work in automation of knowledge work. Um, this business about change, we have talked about change now for the last 50 or 60 years. 
And my question is this, as um, Voltaire said, madness is to reason correctly from the wrong starting point. And I wonder where is our starting point when we want to change everything? Because, for instance, if we talk about declaring an interest rate, that becomes financial policy. And uh, when you print money, it becomes uh, quantitative easing. Do we gain anything in uh, knowledge by just changing these names about, do you think? I'm sorry to all the others who wanted to ask questions. There's clearly an excess demand, which you might need for the economy. I wish we could actually... uh, um, I wish I could answer all the questions because I see a lot of uh, involvement, which is good. Um, The question on striking a balance. I wish I had a a recipe for for all countries, but I don't, because I think that uh, different countries are facing different uh, problems and have to tackle it in a different way. But I think there is one thing that basically uh, most, at least, European countries and probably other countries in the world as well need to do more of, and that is structural reform. When I uh, meet with my colleagues, in, uh, either in IMF or the OECD or wherever, we all talk about it, the importance of introducing structural reforms, but for some strange reason... They are not implemented. Um, I think that is uh, a key issue for for politicians these days. We really need to see see uh, structural reforms through because we are going through structural shifts. Norway is going through a structural shift because of um, of uh, the the peaking of the oil production. Uh, other countries go through structural shifts be- um, that has come out of other issues. Striking a balance for a politician has to do with doing the right thing and uh, trying to fit in uh, all the political ambitions that you have at the same time. That is, of course, more difficult when uh, budgets are tighter. But I think that you can release um, room for, for that if you manage uh, the budgets better. And politics is about priority. And if you don't prioritize, um, uh, then you won't find room for the things that you actually want to uh, implement. Uh, But that is also difficult. It's very easy to say that you need to to cut here to to free... uh, um, um, resources to, to other sectors. It's a little bit more difficult to do it because uh, you will um, upset someone uh, while doing so. And that's the difficult part of being a politician. But you need to make decisions and you need to stick, stick to them. Um, yes, we have a good social model in Norway. And yes, I know that it's admired in uh, many other countries. And yes, it is expensive. But I still believe that it's, it's a good thing for a society to have a good buffer system because it creates um, security, stability uh, to the people, uh, which in, by itself is important. But it is possible to reform them without uh, taking them away. It's actually uh, possible to do so, but you have to go thoroughly through each and every uh, part of the welfare system uh, but you need, to, you need to have a very clear task on what kind of reform you're actually about to, to, to uh, implement. 
because you want to cut uh, welfare away just because it's, um, it, it's uh, a resource question. That's one thing. But that's not on my agenda. I think that we need to, we need to have a, a social sec uh, security uh, in our society because it works better that way. Uh, but it's definitely possible to introduce reforms. And the ones that we just uh, had through Parliament on the labour market, where we still have a lot of security uh, as employers uh, in Norway, as employed, but we have still introduced a reform that makes the labour market more flexible, which is necessary because times have changed since uh, the former law was uh, introduced back in the 1950s, where the labour market was totally different than it is today. question on change. Well, I'm for change. I think change is good. Change is uh, innovation. Change is, I mean, all, our whole history is about change. So now we're facing um, some changes, especially by, for instance, um, sharing economy. Um, and I think politicians both here in the UK and in Norway and other countries are facing um, angry taxi drivers because of Uber. And that's not so strange because uh, the, the taxi companies are um, protecting their market and they're not so eager to have a competitor in the, uh, coming. But for, uh, from a consumer perspective, it's actually good. And it can create more value and it can create more business and it can actually create so much creativity that that alone can create more uh, economic growth. So I'm not afraid of change and I'm not afraid of innovation. I think we should uh, applaud it. And I think the important task as a politician is to facilitate for these companies to enter market because they are there already. Um, the question is, can we regulate them better? Can we tax them properly? Because I'm very much in favor of uh, good companies that uh, pay their tax. Because if we have enough solid companies that pay tax, we can also maintain a good welfare system. Thank you.